Well, as I mentioned, um, we're looking at this uh, Advent series, and it's really, it's four weeks. Uh, This is the third week that we're jumping into today. We've been looking specifically at how God, in His infinite wisdom, uh, has designed this plan of salvation, this ultimate storyline, this ultimate and epic drama that He has written, and He has enacted, and He has put into play. And so we started... um, uh, this series, looking at uh, creation, God's wisdom in creation. Last week, we looked at seeing how his wisdom is even seen through the fall of man. Uh, it maybe appears that God's creation broke, and it actually did break, but how even in his wisdom, he was working through that. And then today, we'll be looking at redemption, kind of the response to this fall. And as I mentioned, next week, we'll be looking at the restoration Right now, we're kind of in this in-between. We're in between the fall and restoration of all things. Not all things are restored. Not all things are perfect. But not all things are hopeless as it was immediately after the fall. We're in this middle ground right now, an already and not yet type of a period uh, where we're living out the redemption, but it's still not yet the restoration. And we started this year with a series where we, that we would dip in and out of called Wisdom Cries Aloud. Uh, looking at just kind of taking time throughout the year to look at different ways that we can apply God's wisdom. And so with this Advent series, uh, we've titled it the same thing, Wisdom Cries Aloud, uh, speaking of how God's wisdom came in the form of a human. God's wisdom was spoken and his word became flesh and Christ himself being the wisdom of God that has come to this earth in the, in the form of a baby. Now today, as I mentioned, we're looking at redemption and when you think of redemption, there's probably a number of different things that you think of. You think of, uh, you know, sometimes you might think of like the recycling things, you know, California redemption value, something like that. Uh, we think of all kinds of different things when it comes to redemption. And the last couple of weeks I've mentioned a few times uh, just epic stories, epic movies, epic books. We love good stories that have something to do with redemption. We like stories that have to do with reunification, People that have been split off, maybe because of uh, anger or problems, or maybe because they've gotten lost, and they come back together. We like these in movies. We like these in stories that we see online. People that were separated from birth, or whatever it might be, or marriages or families being restored. We love these kinds of stories, stories where people get lost and then somehow make their way back to each other. We like them about people. We like even those kinds of movies about dogs and animals. We like those kind of reunification stories. And we like stories how somehow, somewhere along the line, someone gets picked to be the hero of the story, and they're very unlikely. We love those kinds of stories, the underdog stories. You can think of so many different movies and books and real-life examples of underdogs. I mentioned last week some kind of easy ones, Star Wars, Lord of the Rings. You know, you think through a a farmhand from Tatooine is somehow going to save the galaxy. How unlikely, but we love getting behind an underdog like that, you know, or a, a hobbit from the Shire, seeing that one little boy being able to save all of Middle Earth. We just, we see these things. We love these unlikely stories. And when you think through it, every epic movie, every good movie, uh, every good drama, every good book has kind of some similar parts. It starts off where all is well. Everything is great. Everything is kind of perfect, perfect in the family, perfect in the world, whatever it is. And then tragedy strikes. And all of a sudden, the viewer or the reader is thinking, all is lost. How is this going to be undone? And then eventually you see an unlikely hero come along and they go through kind of their ups and downs and we kind of think that it's not really going to work out. But then this unlikely hero eventually defeats the enemy in an unlikely way. And we see that and it's just this this massive moment. And then usually at the end of the story, everything is better than even how it was before. So we see that by the end of the story, it's not just, well, I guess we can keep on going. Somehow, most of these stories end where the final result is better than the starting point itself. And a lot of movies, a lot of books are like this. We even have, this time of year, we have a lot of movies that are like this that you guys watch at home, like Home Alone, right? Starts off, they're going on a family vacation to Europe. I mean, that's a pretty nice vacation for Christmas, going off to France. But then tragedy strikes, they leave their seven-year-old home, You've got these burglars that are going to come in, and they're going to try to, you know, take over this kid and whatever. But then by the end, the unlikely hero, the seven-year-old, defeats these bad guys. And eventually, everything is better than what it was in the beginning. Now, Kevin appreciates his family. Sorry, spoiler alert here, okay? (laughs) Kevin appreciates his family. Even, remember old man Marley, right? Even he gets redeemed in the story. They get reconciled. So we, we love that stuff, right? Christmas vacation, 
right? The selfish boss, Mr. Shirley, he cuts Christmas bonuses. And then the unlikely hero, the lovable loser, Cousin Eddie, he comes in and somehow saves the day and saves Christmas. And he even gets redeemed. And even Mr. Shirley, the, the wretched old boss, he actually has a heart change too. He gets redeemed. We see this all over. I mean, Elf, I mean, come on. Elf is all about reunification and redemption, and in the end, it's the same thing, right? There's, the family is put back together, everyone's happy, and even Buddy gets the girl. So there's like all kinds of redemption in that story. So we love these stories. We love these stories, whether it's a, you know, a superhero movie or if it's Christmas movies or if it's things like Star Wars and Lord of the Rings. We love stories with great redemptive themes and great restoration themes. And so last week and the week before, as we looked at creation, all is well, everything is good, but then the fall, tragedy strikes, all is lost, and now today we're looking at really the unlikely hero, the redemption. Next week, we'll be looking at the restoration, how all is going to be better than even in the beginning. If we have a picture, we think that the Garden of Eden was awesome, and it was, but what we have in the future is far greater than what was in the garden. And that's what we'll be ending with next Sunday morning. So allow me to pray, and we're going to jump into Ephesians chapter 1. We'll thank the Lord just for bringing us here and ask him just to help this become a real uh, a reality for us as we head into Christmas. Heavenly Father, we come here, God, just thankful. Thankful for our kids, thankful just to be able to celebrate with them. Thankful that even as we sang that song, we know that uh, we, we have nothing to give to you. We're sinners. Our, our deeds are like filthy rags. Our righteousness is actually filth. And yet you allow us to come to you and just bring a heart of worship. We come to you, God, with, really with, with nothing that we have to give. But because you humbled yourself to come to us, because you lowered yourself to become a human, born in a manger to a poor family, we know that we can approach you. We know that we can approach you by your grace, that you have invited us to come and adore you, to come and worship you. And this morning, we want to do that very thing. We want to come to you. We want to come to your word today, expecting you to open our eyes even wider, enlarge in our hearts, transform our minds, that this Christmas would be a more worshipful Christmas than we've ever had before. So we thank you, Lord. We love you. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10, as a place to jump off of this morning as we look at this theme of redemption. We'll be kind of seeing a lot of these phrases in Ephesians 1, 7 through 10 throughout the sermon. So we'll kind of go back to it as we work through this. So Ephesians 1, this is Paul the Apostle speaking to the Ephesian church. He says, in him, and this is going to be a big phrase we're going to come back to towards the end, in him, speaking of Christ, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom. So this plan of redemption is God's wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. And here's why. To unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. And so last week we saw that God created all things. That God gave man complete dominion over the earth. Gave him sustenance. Gave him food. Gave him a helper. Gave him everything. Except really one thing was held back. One thing that God did not give man was complete and total sovereignty. He didn't crown Adam as king of the earth. He didn't give Adam control and power over everything. He didn't give Adam his own kingdom. But he gave him everything else. 
Everything else he needed, everything he could ever want was his, except for sovereignty. And so humankind now declares war on the kingdom of God in a fight for sovereignty. That's what happened in the fall. Eve saw that the fruit was good to make her wise and like God. And so she decides, I want to be like God. This is not enough. What he has given me is not enough. I want more. I want control. I want power. I want sovereignty. I want wisdom like God. So despite having everything provided for her, she believes the lie, and then she gives her husband. Her husband believes the lie, and war is declared on the kingdom of God, a fight for sovereignty. And see, you and I, we want to be king or queen of our own kingdom. That's what provokes our anger on the roadway. That's what provokes our anger when our kids don't listen to us. That's what causes us to, to fight is because someone just disrupted my kingdom. I deserve to get to work on time. I deserve this or that. And so when your kingdom is disrupted, anger pops up, bitterness, annoyance pops up. We want control. We want sovereignty. Husbands and wives, you don't want your spouse to tell you what to do. You want sovereignty. Kids, you guys don't want your parents to tell you when to put the device down or when you have to come to dinner or if you have to eat all your vegetables, whatever. You want sovereignty. You want control. You want the say-so in your own life. Christian, you don't want to do things God's way. You want to convince yourself that this is different. I know the Bible says this, but this is different. If you just knew my situation, God, you would let me do this. You don't want to do things God's way. You want sovereignty. You want to be king or queen of your own kingdom. It's the same exact desire that Satan had. When he was Lucifer in heaven, he wanted to be like God. He had everything, but he wanted more. He wanted sovereignty. He wanted to have his own kingdom. It's the same desire that Adam and Eve had, to be like God and be king and queen of the earth. It's the same desire that you and I have. We desire to be king or queen of our own worlds, of our own circumstances. We want to be sovereign over our own life, your own schedule, your calendar, your money, your friendships. You want to be the king or queen of your own kingdom. And so, because we don't have that, we rebel. We turn our backs and we do things our way. We, we fight. We fight with one another for control over our kingdom and we fight with God. Now, for Adam and Eve, they quickly realize their mistake and they saw that they knew that God would somehow probably bring down his wrath upon them. Now, what happens in, in a real war in this life when two countries fight, one loses, country fights and is defeated, usually land is lost, that land is acquiesced into this other kingdom, the occupants of that land sometimes become slaves or at least citizens of this newly formed country, the ones who started the war, the generals, the presidents, whatever, those ones are usually put on trial, maybe for war crimes, they're imprisoned depending on the nature of the war. And now here in this story, in the sense, Adam and Eve are expecting the same thing. They realize they made a huge mistake. They're expecting the full wrath of God. They're expecting to be put on trial and found guilty of cosmic treason. And in this story, just like land being lost in, in earthly wars, in a sense, the deed to the land, to the world, has been lost. They were given dominion over the earth and over the animals. And so now all of a sudden, they're, they're losing the deed to the earth. So it's like when you buy a house, you have to sign a mortgage contract, or you buy a car, you have a pink slip that shows ownership, or you buy anything, you buy a, a jacket or a pair of shoes at a store, you get a receipt. This paperwork proves who the owner is. And in this sense, this paperwork is being handed back over. They don't have this dominion over the earth now. It's no longer theirs. Maybe in a tough time, maybe you, you make a bet and you lose things. And in this case, it's a, it's a war. You give over the actual item, but you also hand over the receipt or the pink slip to show that I, I do not own this. I cannot claim this as my own. I don't have proof of ownership. Now, to reclaim something, if you lose something, you lose it to the bank, whatever it is, someone has to come in who has the right, someone has to have the right to be able to claim this and redeem it. Someone wants to get you out of debt, they have to have the ability, they have to have the means 
the money or whatever it is, and they have to make a claim and then pay for it if you're going to get it back. If you cannot afford to get it back, someone else has to step in and redeem it for you, purchase it, give you the item and the receipt or and the, the pink slip, whatever it is. And in this case, Adam and Eve has lost the deed or the mortgage paper, so to speak, to the earth. They cannot afford to buy it back ever. They're at the mercy of God. For them to actually ever have any kind of future, someone has to come in and redeem it for them and give it back to them. Essentially, what they need is another Adam. They need another person to come along and do what Adam was not able to do, someone to actually live up to the demands that God has put on humanity. The first Adam failed. We need another chance. We need another Adam. Because Adam and Eve were charged with treason, condemned to death. Not immediate death, but condemned to death. In our country, if you're a spy, if you're found out to be a spy or you commit treason, the penalty is death. And these two have committed treason against God Almighty. And this cosmic treason and war has been declared against God. And so the penalty for that rebellion is death. Someone has to pay so that justice can be served, so that justice can be satisfied. For justice to really have its way, and it's a good thing for justice to have its way. It is a good thing for justice to be served. Someone must be punished. Blood must be shed. If someone in our country commits murder, justice is only satisfied when there is punishment. And it is good when punishment is rendered to someone who has committed murder. It's a good thing. And so in this rebellion, in this treason, blood must be shed. There must be a punishment. They have sinned against God Almighty, creator of the heavens and earth, the author of life itself. This isn't just a sin against a country or a president or a government. This is God. So this is bad news for Adam and Eve. But initially, instead of God instantly condemning them to the punishment they deserve, God did something different, and we saw that he made a promise, but now we're going to see some action behind the promise. You can open with me, if you like, to Genesis chapter 3, verse 20, otherwise it'll be up on the screen behind me. This is his immediate response. He makes this promise. If you remember, he says, I'm going to send someone, someone, an offspring from you, but here's what he does in the meantime. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve. So Adam named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, and he clothed them. Now this is interesting because at first, when Adam and Eve first sinned, they realized they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together so they could hide their nakedness from each other and also from God. But they did this on their own, their own kind of righteous acts, their own ingenuity, oh, let's do that this way, but that wouldn't do. Our own deeds, our own attempts to cover our own sin will not satisfy the justice of God. There has to be punishment. Blood must be shed. There is a real punishment. You can't, you can't break the law and say, how about I just pay $10 for my fine instead of 1000 You can't do that. It's not up to you to set the fine. And that's what they're doing here. Oh, well, if we just cover ourselves with fig leaves, is it, are we good now? No, the blood must be shed for what they have done. And so what God does, instead of punishing Adam and Eve in an immediate sense, he punishes an innocent animal, kills it. It's the first time blood is shed in the Bible. First time death actually is seen in the Bible. God kills an innocent animal who did not sin against God, uses the skin to cover them. Something innocent covers Adam and Eve. And it's interesting to note that the word atonement means a covering. And so in a sense, God is now temporarily atoning for their sin by covering them with the blood of an innocent animal. This shows the severity of what happens. I think probably in this moment, they realize this is serious business. God just killed an animal who did nothing. There's probably a lot of guilt for them wearing their first leather outfit realizing that this is an animal that did absolutely nothing and it has to be used to cover me. Eventually then, throughout the, the future, there was a Passover lamb. God gave the Hebrews some instruction when they were imprisoned in Egypt, slaves in Egypt. 
God said, I'm going to deliver you from Egypt. I'm going to let you come out, but here's what's going to happen. I'm going to kill the firstborn in all the land, both human and animals. If you believe in me, if you believe that I'm the true God, what I want you to do is I want you to go out and I want you to take a, a lamb who is perfect, a perfect, spotless lamb, an innocent lamb, and I want you to slaughter it. Though it did nothing, I want you to slaughter it. I want you to put the blood over the doorpost, and at night when I go through the town, I'm going to slaughter the firstborn of everyone, every, every uh, human and every animal, the firstborn in that household, unless the blood of that innocent lamb is on your doorpost. I will pass over you. So if you believe in God, you will put the blood of the lamb upon your home, and I will pass over. I will put my wrath on that innocent lamb, and I will not put it on you. God allowed momentarily to put his wrath on these animals, on these first animals that clothed Adam and Eve, as well as on the Passover lamb and all the other animal sacrifices in the Old Testament. But these animals were not enough to satisfy they were not enough. His wrath would only go on to them temporarily. In a way, it's kind of like these animals are like posting bail, so to speak. They temporarily let us remain free. So there's patience from the judge and from the court because we paid our, our fine. But the bail, that can't satisfy the court. If bail is set at 10000 or 20000 but that doesn't compare to the penalty that is potential, life in prison or whatever it might be. But Baal temporarily sets us free so that we can live our life. That's kind of what happened here. There's temporary abatement of, of God's wrath upon these animals. But this Baal money is not enough to actually cover the cost of the penalty of the actual crime. Just like Baal cannot do for us. And I mentioned this, that it could not be an animal that could reclaim the deed to the land and forgiveness because animals were not the ones to commit the crime. I mentioned that the last couple of weeks. Only a man could be punished for the sins of man. Only a man could actually make the payments in order to purchase this salvation and dominion over the earth back for mankind. So again, we need another Adam who can come along and undo what the first Adam did. Could there be a man who would be a human Passover lamb? that's what we need. We can't, we can't settle on this, these actual Passover lambs, these leather skins. We need a human who could actually be a Passover lamb. Last week we saw that Adam and Eve realized the degree of their treason, and then instantly they have been given this hope of a coming Savior that would come through their own bloodline, their own offspring. And I said that no doubt they probably thought it was going to be one of their sons, Cain or Abel, but it was not Cain or Abel. Abel was dead, killed by his own brother. It couldn't be Abel because he was conquered by death. It couldn't be Cain because Cain is a murderer, conquered by sin. So who would it be? Well, time goes on. And we look at a, a brief history of salvation through the descendants of Adam and Eve, the, the good potentials. You've got Noah. God is grieved over what he sees on the earth. He says that, that people are only thinking and doing evil continually. The earth became horrible evil all around the earth. God is grieved over what he sees. But he gives grace to a man named Noah and to his family. And he puts them in an ark and all the, the, all the sinners on the earth are destroyed and we're going to start brand new, kind of like the garden. Come on out, family. Look, everything's new. There's no sin on the earth. There's just animals again. And now you understand mercy, don't you? Noah, you've seen mercy, you've seen my grace given, so, so now that you see my wrath in full form, you get mercy, surely now we can start over. But immediately, despite this new information, a new picture of God's wrath and holiness, and also his mercy and grace, immediately we find Noah getting drunk, among other things. So it's clearly not Noah. Noah is not the Savior. He, he's the job living up to the standard and purchasing back the land for us. Time goes on, we have Abraham, a specific man God sets aside to be the father of this nation, the father of the faith. He says, so many people are going to populate this earth and bless the earth through your lineage. So maybe it's, maybe it's Abraham, but it's not Abraham. He lies, he's filled with fear, he lacks faith. Even Abraham cannot be a savior. He fails. 
And we have got Moses, a man that God had entrusted enough to give him his law, the Ten Commandments. I mean, this guy, this guy's got to be legit if, if God is actually giving him the Ten Commandments. Appoints him to lead the Israelites out of Egypt into freedom. Surely there could not be a better savior on the planet than Moses. The guy leads him out through the desert and wanders and sees the Egyptian army be pummeled by the Red Sea behind him. I mean, this guy is a savior. But it's not even Moses. Before the Exodus, Moses actually killed an Egyptian. Moses disobeyed God throughout the whole Exodus. He was filled with fear. He got so angry. I don't know if you know this, but the first set of tablets that God gave Moses when he's walking down the hill, he sees everyone sinning, committing adultery, so he actually throws down the tablets and breaks them. He had to go get a second copy. Seriously. Like, when you're that mad, you throw the Ten Commandments at people. Like, stop sinning against God. Like, what? You just threw the Ten Commandments. Like, you, that doesn't, you can't do that. So he had to go get a second copy. So we're sitting there looking at Moses going, okay, it, it can't be Moses. Moses wasn't even allowed to go into the promised land at the very end of that 40-year journey. He was not allowed to enter into the promised land. Time goes on, and then we've got David. David, a man after God's own heart is what the Bible says. A man after God. Would you love that title? Would you love that to be on your tombstone? You know, after you've, That's your legacy, but now this legacy is written in God's word for all eternity. Everyone knows David's a man after God's own heart. He's like, man, I'm a man after God's own heart. God said so. You see, see what God said about me? I'm a man of his heart. That's, that's cool, huh? And you're thinking, David, he's, he's, a, he's the, this great king that rules over Israel. Finally, God's people, they have a king, a king appointed by God, a great king. But you get deeper in his story, and you see that David committed adultery. Saw a woman that he wanted who was already married, and then he had his, his girlfriend's husband murdered. And his husband actually happened to be a general in his army, a close friend. He had him killed. Premeditated murder and adultery. The list goes on and on and on. Even the best of the best of all of human history, there is no one. There is no one. Blood is required from a man who can actually stand before God and say, I fulfilled all the law, so punish me instead of all these. But no man could actually live up to these righteous requirements. No one could. No one is worthy enough to pay back God. And sometimes I, I wonder, why all this work? Why not just start out this way? Why do we have to even go through the whole fall and everything in the first place? Why can't we just have remained as Adam and Eve were, as sinless? Now, first of all, though God created Adam and Eve as uncorrupted, they were made perfect, uncorrupted, God is actually not able to do something. There's a few things that God can't do. He can't sin. He can't break promises. There's a few things that God cannot do. God also cannot create beings that are incorruptible. He can make them uncorrupted, but he can't make beings that are incorruptible. He can't make beings that are imperishable. And the reason is that because if he could do that, if he could make a being that is incorruptible, then he would be creating another God, another himself. An incorruptible being would be God. He cannot create another God. There is only one God, and he is not duplicatable. He could create something in his image, something that is uncorrupted in his image, but it would necessarily have limitations because that creation is not God. Anything that's not God has limitations. And so he creates in his image uncorrupted beings, but we have limitations. Necessarily, we have limitations because we are not him. And I believe that part of why history has gone on so long, thousands and thousands of years, and part of why we have so many failed attempts that we have recorded in God's word to show us I think a lot of this reason is because God is highlighting and showing us that truly, even after thousands of years, godly men and women have come and walked this earth, and yet there is still no one who is actually like God. Everyone's wanted to be like God, from Lucifer to Adam and Eve to you and me, 
We have men after God's own heart. We have men committed the, the Ten Commandments to, but no one is actually like God. There is no one like God. There is only one God, and you and I are not him. And he gives us thousands of years. He goes, look, you guys want to you guys, you guys try to prove me wrong? I'll give you thousands of years. Give me your best. I'll even give grace to you. I'll even put my Holy Spirit in you. But I want you to know there's no one like me. There's no, there is no other God that is like me. And I believe that part of why God has let humanity go on for so long is just to prove beyond the shadow of a doubt that there is only one God. All the others have come and gone. The Buddhas, the Muhammads, they've all come and gone. They're all dead, except for one. The best of the best humankind has put forward, and none of them can stand before God. They've all failed. Romans chapter 3, verse 9. So what then, Paul says, are we Jews any better off? And we can kind of say that the Jews are the ones who try to obey God. They're trying to listen to the law. So even for you, if you're a Christian, you're, you're trying to live after God's words. Are you any better off than, than unbelievers? He says, no, not at all. We've already been charged that all people, both Jews and Greeks, Jews and non-believers, Christians, non-believers, doesn't matter who, everyone, we're all under sin. We're on this side of the fall, and we're not yet here to the restoration. And so as it is written, Paul says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good. No, not even one. Skipping down a few verses to verse 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So what is the solution? The solution is that God the Father, before time began, had already made up his mind that he's going to redeem a people, a people that would turn from him, turn from him, their creator. He knew that they would lose the deed of the land. He knew they'd become slaves and prisoners of sin. But because of his mercy and love, he created, again, before time began, he created a plan. It's one of those words we saw in Ephesians 1, a plan. And this plan is this promise between him and his fallen image bearers. God made a very specific plan to very specifically save a very specific people. People whose names are written in the book of life that was written before the foundation of the earth. But of course, this promise, as we're seeing, can't be fulfilled because these lawbreakers have to be punished. Because God is good and God will not be mocked and he will not look the other way when it comes to evil. Someone must pay and it must be a man. But who could this be? If you could open with me to Revelation chapter 5. It'll be up on the screen as well, but we'll be looking through a few verses. And it'll be good for you just to see these words jump up off the page into your eyes, into your mind, and I hope and I pray the Holy Spirit would lead them into your heart. Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. This is John getting a vision of heaven and the future. He says, Then I saw in the right hand of him, speaking of God the Father, God Almighty, him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. We don't know exactly what this scroll is. But John says, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven, no one on earth, no one under the earth, living, dead, angelic, no one was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began, John says, to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And they're scanning the history of humanity, David, Moses. No one is worthy to open the scroll. No animal, no angel, no one. Verse 5, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root, meaning the offspring of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. 
And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing. A lamb standing as though it had been slain. A Passover lamb. A Passover lamb that was a human. A lamb was standing as though he had been slain. He had been punished. With seven horns and with seven eyes, speaking of his perfection symbolically, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he, this lamb of God, this Passover lamb, he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. We can almost see this in part, at least, as the deed to the lamb that has been surrendered because of our sin. The deed, the title of our salvation. He went and took that scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, singing, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. You were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, and they all sang with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and every creature on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and they worshiped. That is the story of Redemption Church. There was no one, there was no man that could solve this problem in all of human history. God alone could pay himself back, but we saw last week that God could not pay himself back because he's not the one who sinned against himself. It had to be a man, but there was no man who could actually do that. That is God's problem, so to speak. And so he comes up with this plan. He sends his son. He comes up with this plan. He looks to his son, and he says, son, would you go? Would you go, perfect God, would you go and lower yourself and become one of them so that you can fulfill this plan and open the scroll so that salvation and the deeds of the earth, that they could reign on the earth once again? Would you go and do that? Lowering yourself, humbling yourself, and letting me put my wrath upon you. Would you go and do this? And of course, the son who loves his father and his son who loves you and me, he says, I will go and I will do this. I will do this. And as a reward for his part, God the Father, out of a deep love for his son, he promises his son a people, a bride. He says, if you do this and if you fulfill this, I'm going to give you the greatest gift ever. I'm going to give you a bride. I'm going to give you a family of people to call your own. You'll become one with them. But as it was, this bride that Jesus is being promised. She needs to be redeemed. Her sins need to be atoned for because she is filthy. She is unworthy to be called the bride of the Savior of the world, the Lord of all creation. And so something has to be done because between God and this bride is just wrath, perfect wrath. So this bride needs to be purchased back. And so for the son to redeem these people, he has to lower himself and become one of his own creation and then stand in line, in the place of them. Stand in place of man himself, becoming their sin. He becomes their sin, the filthiness of their sin. He becomes that. And he is forced to drink the cup of the wrath of the fury of his own father. And he drinks it down every last drop absorbs all the wrath of God. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, God himself must become a man, a perfect man, and fulfill every single part of the law in order to permanently appease and satisfy the wrath and righteous requirements of his Father's law. 
And if he does this, though, his reward is great, a perfect and holy church, a bride, a people, a family for all eternity, for him to enjoy, to become one with them. And so he says, yes, this will be the one act that will secure for eternity a people for his own glory, people chosen before the foundation of the earth to bring him glory. Church, though you were an enemy of God, committing treason, declaring yourself as king or queen of your own world, the Son of God came to save you and die in your place, does not punish you for that treason that you've committed. As John 3.16 famously says, God so loved the world that he gave us his only son. And church, none of this can be done by us. We can't put on our own fig leaves. We can't atone for our own sin. You can't bribe God with your good works. Christ alone has the ability and has done what is necessary for you to be saved, for you to be changed. God did every last bit of the story of salvation. There's a quote in your notes that you can read along with me here. By a guy named John Stott. And it just it comes from this incredible book, The Cross of Christ. This, this amazing insight, speaking of how God did every single last little detail of your salvation. You offer nothing to your salvation. Here's what he says. It is God himself who in holy wrath needs to be propitiated, meaning satisfied. God's justice needs to be satisfied. And it is God himself. God's the only one who needs to be satisfied. And his holy wrath needs to be satisfied. God himself, who in holy love undertook to do the satisfying. He's the one who designed the plan. He came up with the plan. And it's God himself who in the person of his son died for the propitiation, the satisfaction of our sins. And thus God took his own loving initiative to appease his own righteous anger by bearing this own anger by his own self in his own son when he took our place and when he died for us. God did it all from beginning to end, bumper to bumper, God did it all. He initiated it, he completed it, he fulfilled it, and he is satisfied because of what he has done through his own son. The word of God itself says that Jesus Christ is in fact the last Adam that we will ever need on this earth. We got our second Adam, who's also the last Adam because no one else is needed. You're not needed to satisfy the wrath of God against you. You are not needed to fulfill all of God's laws and commands because the last Adam has come to this earth and he's fulfilled everything. 1 Corinthians 15, we'll be getting this in a couple months. Thus it is written, the first Adam became a living being, but the last Adam, speaking of Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. This fulfills Ephesians 1 that we opened up with. In him, in Christ, in this Lamb of God, this Passover Lamb, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, his initiation, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time and for this purpose, for this great and glorious purpose to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on the earth, which we see fulfilled in Revelation chapter five. This is redemption, church. This is the story of redemption. You have sinned and fallen short, but God worked a plan to redeem you and save you. And as much as we might romanticize or think that remaining in the garden, the state of Adam and Eve, would have been ideal, it really actually would not be. Despite all the pain and suffering we do go through in a very real way, and we think to ourselves, gosh, why did it have to happen this way? We can't romanticize the garden. I mean, we can a little bit because that, it was very good. But our future state, church, our future hope, our eternal hope, our eternal reward is going to be far greater and more glorious than anything that Adam and Eve ever witnessed. Anything they ever enjoyed in the perfection of the Garden of Eden, that is nothing compared to what we're going to enjoy for all eternity because of how things went in this crazy drama that God has written. I mean, you might have wondered at some point, if it was perfect in the Garden, though, and, and if Adam and Eve sinned when it was perfect, and if God can't make incorruptible beings, like you said, then will we be able to sin when we're in heaven? 
It's a good question. Do you ever wonder, like, is this just going to happen again when we're there? Is this just like a do-over? Like, what's going to be different? And this is what is so important and powerful about Ephesians chapter 1 and seeing Revelation 5 and, and all these different verses coming together because, see, Adam and Eve, as I mentioned, they were uncorrupted. They didn't have any sin. They were uncorrupted, but they were not incorruptible. They had the ability to be corrupted because God could not create them as incorruptible because that would be him. And through sin, we all became corrupted. We become corrupted because of our sin. But then God himself, in his own plan, set forth in his plan, in his own son, his own son who is not only uncorrupted, Jesus is uncorrupted, but Jesus is also incorruptible. He cannot be corrupted because he's God. He will come and he will conquer, making a way for those who had been corrupted. Now we can be raised from the dead. We can be made one with him. See, we're made one with him. And since we're one with him, when we're raised, we're not raised now just as uncorrupted, but because we're made one with him in a very real way, because he stood in our place, he became our sin, we became his righteousness in a very real way. Now because we're one, now we take on the nature of incorruptibility. We could not be created that way, but because of this redemption, now we get to take on and partake in the divine nature, which is incorruptible. So though we can't be created that way, we get to become that way. And so now because we'll be raised as incorruptible, we will never be able to sin because we share with him in the divine nature. This is something that Adam and Eve never had. Adam was never in Christ. He was never in Christ. Adam was in Adam. Eve was in Eve. But they were not in Christ. Christ had never come to redeem yet. He had never come to stand in their place. So they were just, they were in their own power trying to obey God's law. But now, church, going back to Ephesians 1, we're in him. We are in him. And when this body is renewed, right now my body is still corrupted. So even though I'm in him now, but I have a corrupted body. So this is why I'm still not perfect. But when this body dies and is resurrected as brand new, it will be a newly uncorrupted body with the incorruptible spirit of Christ inside of it. Right now I've got the incorrupted spirit of Christ in me, but it's in a corrupted body. So I'm in this in-between, post-fall but pre-restoration. But after the restoration, we're going to see next week, we're going to have new bodies that are uncorrupted with a whole new engine. Incorruptible. Something that Adam and Eve never had in the garden. Never had that unity with Christ in the garden. That's another reason why I think Adam and Eve were even more amazed at God after the fall. They thought they had it pretty good in the garden, but they saw after this, these leather garments given to them and this bloodshed, and they're seeing this whole other side of God, and they're seeing redemption. They're saying, our future is even better than the garden. They knew it was good before they rebelled, but now they're seeing his mercy and grace and forgiveness. In 2 Peter chapter 1, I'll close with this verse to give us this picture. Peter says, his divine power, God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted us, this is what he has granted us, his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. You can partake in the divine incorruptible nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And once again, we see God's wisdom reigning supreme as the story of his wisdom continues to unfold, that as Ephesians says, in him, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on the earth. 
We get to partake in the divine nature because we are now in him and our future is good. We have a future that is imperishable, a future that is unfading, this inheritance that is unfading, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for us, this unending, undefiled, imperishable inheritance kept in heaven for us under lock and key so that we can't get our sinful hands on it. It's being kept in heaven for us. Because now we get to partake in the incorruptible, imperishable divine nature. That's redemption. That's the good news. Let's pray now and thank the Lord for this incredible news. We want to thank him that he came up with this radical plan. This plan that, that, just, that every, every epic movie is somehow built around the, the concepts of this plan. This is the ultimate story, the ultimate drama, the depths of wisdom of this story are, are unfathomable. We'll be exploring this for all of eternity, getting to deeper depths of understanding God's wisdom in this plan. <sighs> Heavenly Father, it is just incredible, Incredible that just in a few moments we're able to look at the story and just be stricken with awe over how you worked this plan. Whoever saw this coming, that somehow you would make sinners able to become one with you and partake in the divine nature. We never could have seen this coming. We thought it was a pretty good story just with creation and the garden, but this is so much better. Despite the fall, despite sin and evil coming in the world, we see the end result. We get a glimpse of this end result, this future glory, this future glory that we're going to see so much more of next Sunday, looking at the restoration of all things and what our, our, our future hope is going to be. And we're just amazed at the wisdom of this plan. We thank you, Lord. Thank you for coming up with this plan before the world even began, before all of creation, you devised this plan. You chose a people for your own glory to redeem and save through your son. This is crazy. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your, your might and your power. The great name of Jesus. The name that's above all names. Our Savior, our Lord. We thank you, Lord. We love you. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.